Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of Plot Devices, the the uh, film and TV podcast where a bunch of people get together. Sometimes it's three, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. We don't know exact numbers. I I failed math. That's a lie. You decide. My name is Brandon King. I'm one of your hosts for today, alongside my co-host Noah Guzman. Noah, how are you doing today? Brandon, do we got to get you a math tutor? What's going on there? You know, I, no. I think. <laughs> Hello, everybody. And actually, Samantha Ankravaya is not joining us today, but uh, in her place today, we have a very special guest, a mutual friend of the show. He is the host and creator of No Capes Required, uh, in addition to a bunch of other things. Go follow them on Zero Capes Required on, uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Sky Merida is here, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Sky, how are you doing today? I am doing great. I mean, this is a privilege to be on Plot Devices. I think we've been talking about a while to try to get this podcast cinematic universe going. And I think this is this is the beginning. I don't know what Marvel movie I would compare it to, but it's sort of like we, we've have we reached the threshold. This is the Chicago PD Chicago Fire crossover. Everyone has been wanting. OK, I got you. So, yeah, we're not quite Avengers territory yet, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Small steps. <laughs> But yeah, well, of course, happy to have you, happy to have sort of, you know, the podcast cinematic universe expanding. Um, speaking of universes expanding, and that was totally intentional, we're going to be talking about uh, a pretty hefty spinoff that just got announced uh, this week or just got a pretty big development this week. The first trailer for Game of Thrones' spinoff House of the Dragon uh, has been released this week. First trailer released earlier this week on HBO's uh, YouTube channel. It is set 200 years before the events of Game of Thrones. It will follow the events of House Cardarian, the dynasty that will eventually spawn Amelia Clark's uh, in- infamous, iconic character Daenerys Targaryen and the fall from grace uh, during a period of civil war. Uh, Miguel Sapochnik, I tried to pronounce his name before, who won an Emmy for his work on Game of Thrones, uh, the final season, will be directing the entirety of the first season which was written by Colonies Ryan Condal and the series creator uh, George R.R. Martin. Patty Considine will lead the ensemble cast that also includes Olivia Cook, Matt Smith, Emma D'Arcy, Reese Fons, and Graham McTavish. It is set for release sometime on HBO Max in 2022. Uh, no, I want to get your thoughts first. Are you a big Game of Thrones fan? And if so, wh- what did you think of the first look for House of Dragons? Big Game of Thrones fan. I started when season seven was announced, I believe. And so I watched and binged like the first six seasons with my college roommate and was just, that was my world for the the, the few months that we had nothing else to watch or that we didn't want to watch anything else. Yeah. Game of Thrones was our idol. Um, so of course, you know, we went through all the roller coaster emotions when those new seasons dropped, but hearing the announcement of a new show definitely got, you know, it got our eyes wide again. Especially knowing that Olivia Cook is going to be attached to this. I'm a big fan of hers and exploring the, the Targaryens back in their, like the prime of their reign is going to be such an interesting, like spectacle to have in the world of Westeros where we have uh, the Game of Thrones all set. And then especially knowing that this is a series that is based on a book that is already completed. It gives me hope that, you know, the, the structure of the story and um, some of those plot points are going to be more, um, fleshed out and I guess uh, believable. Um, they're going to be entertaining and they're going to be worth it. So it's coming out soon, you know, next year on HBO Max. That's not a long wait. Full speed ahead to the next Game of Thrones series. Are we going to get to see that that multiple headed dragon? Because if we do, I am like, I'm living for that. I cannot wait to see the dragons come in this new series. As a Game of Thrones novice, I assume you mean the thing on the poster. It seems cool. I have no context for it. Uh, <laughs> Sky. Can you provide a little bit of context for this? What were your thoughts on the initial teaser for House of Dragons? Yeah, I mean, I'm actually with you, Brandon. I'm kind of a Game of Thrones novice myself, but so many people around the world, it seems like we're probably the only two Game of Thrones novices out there because everybody loves this show. And it's crazy that 
it's interesting. It's one of those rare types of fandoms where it's like, even if you're not connected to the show, you actually are more connected to the show than you realize because literally I was like, you know, looking up on sports center and they were like, you know, after like um, a recent episode and they were talking about a game of Thrones episode, like, Oh, this person dies. So it's just weird that these um, it's a fandom that unfortunately I would say like is no, how do I put it? Is not secret in terms of their spoilers. Like it's actually very easy to get spoiled to the show. And it's, that's why for me, even without seeing as many episodes, I feel like I kind of know a lot of the story. And yeah, when you see like, even like it's kind of spanned through all walks of life, you really can't escape game of Thrones, whether it's like, you know, seeing a Starbucks coffee cup on like an episode or, you know, hearing like who killed, I mean, I guess I don't want to spoil anything, but literally who, you know, killed a certain person, like it pops and trends all over Twitter without you even seeing it. So I, I guess I want to get your take on this, Noah, because you are like the biggest Game of Thrones fan in this chat, certainly, <laughs> as he puts up Noah his has house Targaryen representing. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, like, do you feel like this series, do you feel like this is a series that novices can maybe enjoy because it is sort of like a prequel? Respecting the original series' characters, I think it's important to understand what it means for Daenerys to, to claim her, like, you know, all, you have all these different characters in the original Game of Thrones series claiming their right to the next seat in the throne. And so when you pay attention to uh, Daenerys Targaryen, uh, and in season one, it's her and her brother, they are the last, really, of the Targaryen bloodline who who feels like they, like, it is their right to take back that uh, that mantle, that, that power. And, you know... Uh, you're left with this backstory of the Mad King, which of course was another Targaryen who another character in the Game of Thrones series uh, kills. His name's Jamie. He's like the Kingslayer. I think that's his nickname. And I think with this series, you know, you're going to get to see why the Targaryens were so established in their ruling. And I think it is important to, when you go and watch Game of Thrones, all you have is just Daenerys as the represent as the representation of Targaryen. I'm excited to see with House of Dragon what the tar- what the Targaryens were like as a whole. And so I think maybe you'll, I don't think you're at a loss by not watching Game of Thrones and then entering in with this series. I mean, if anything, it's going to be like a huge backstory for the one day that you do go knock on Game of Thrones' door. But I would hope that, yeah, this, this needs to be enjoyable for all audiences because the way Game of Thrones ended, um, especially over social media, it left such a sour like note on that beautiful, wonderful series. And so uh, I cannot wait for the conversation to continue with this new one. And um, I hope everybody enjoys it. Interestingly, we've been talking about a Game of Thrones spinoff seemingly since the final season was confirmed. Like, oh, yeah, you can leave as long as there's something else to replace you. But I will admit, this is a cool teaser. Like, I don't know much about the Targaryen mythology, but like, I love the designs of them. I love how it's, you know, it feels very akin to the Star Wars prequels of like something, you know, that is also has a very distinct design aesthetic to it. Um, I Matt Smith, I'm so happy to see him doing more things. I love him in Doctor Who, and I'm just happy to see him do more things. It's interesting. It gives me another, you know, of the many growing list of reasons to watch Game of Thrones. So count me as curious. Yeah. Do you feel like this series like will be trending as much as like, you know, the original Game of Thrones series? Or do you feel like some people because, you know, the series left on such a sour note that some people are just going to be like, yeah, I'm not interested absolutely if it's game of thrones it's trending and so as soon as house of dragon drops i don't think even if they drop the ball all those game of thrones fans who are waiting there's going to be a spotlight on this series for sure yeah i agree 
All right. With that being said, let's move on to our second main topic of the day. Uh, Tick, Tick, Boom, uh, Netflix's latest uh, musical adaptation of the uh, Jonathan Larson musical, released its first full-length trailer this week. Uh, again, it's based on the semi-autobiographical uh, musical of the same name, uh, again, by Jonathan Larson, who, went, who would go on to do Rent. Uh, the film follows Larson playing the movie by Andrew Garfield at a key crossroads in his life as he strives to become a famous theater composer amongst insurmountable odds. Uh, the film marks the directorial debut of actually Lin-Manuel Miranda, of course, you know, mon- known for Hamilton and many, many other things, working from a screenplay from another musical uh, alumni, Jeremy Hansen's Stephen Levinson. Alexander Shipp, Vanessa Hudgens, Ramadeh Jesus, Joshua Henry, and Bradley Whitford round out the cast. Tick to Boom will actually have a limited theatrical release on November 12th before streaming on Netflix on November 9th. Uh, Sky, I want to get your thoughts on this first. Uh, did you have any background experience with the musical itself? And what do you think about the show itself? And also the idea of Lemon Mole Miranda extending into directing. Yeah, um, I actually didn't have too much, um, you know, prior history to knowing the musical. But I will say this is my reaction to the trailer. When I started, I was like, OK, this seems like an innocent enough Netflix series. You know, it might draw some eyes. Good for Andrew Garfield to get back in the scene. And then halfway point, I'm like, oh, OK, we're taking a darker turn here. There's some like, you know, hidden layers here. And um, in that regard, it's kind of interesting because I'm and definitely I'll throw this question back to you. But I'm just interested to see, like, what type of classification this movie is going to be. It's more, you know, continuing the resurgence of Andrew Garfield as like, you know, maybe a potential like awards push or something like that into the future. Or is this going to be like just kind of a one time thing, maybe a movie that we feel like will get more recognition, but ultimately doesn't in the same veins as like, you know, I'm blanking on the movie, but that movie with um, Zendaya and uh, that came like last year back. And then, you know, another movie like um, Malcolm and Marie. Yeah. Which, yeah, got some recognition at the time, but then a lot of negative press. And then you also had like Cherry with Tom Holland, which some people were thinking about. And that kind of like came and went. So I'm wondering if is it, is it going to be that type of movie or is this going to be a movie where it's like, OK, Andrew Garfield is really good in this. This is an interesting, different movie, a different role for him. And we're going to pay attention to this as awards buzz comes. Noah, as our resident theater buff, how familiar were you with uh, Jonathan Larson's work? And uh, what are your thoughts on the trailer? Yes, I am by no means a musical theater expert, but I did have a conversation with some fellow castmates. I'm involved in a theater production here in my uh, community, and they pointed out to me after I shared with them, you know, that Rent was my favorite musical. I I dream of being in it one day. Um, They shared with me that Tick, Tick, Boom uh, is a new movie that's going to be coming out uh, from Jonathan Larson. And I said, huh? Like, to Sky's point, I am so happy to see Garfield uh, back. Um, I know he was in Through the uh, the Eyes of Tammy Faye, um, which I would like to know, did he sing it all in that one, Brandon? Um, please let me know. If he does, it's very briefly. I don't remember. Okay, so here he's taking a, like a lead role in a singing or in a musical. And with Lin-Manuel uh, directing, I think that there's, I do hope that it isn't one that is... Um, that that receives the same kind of reaction as Dear Evan Hansen musical adaptation. Um, but that's, you know, they're in totally different lanes. They're just both musicals. Very excited to see Vanessa Hudgens as a part of this as well. She was in Rent Live, so I imagine she does have um, that affinity or that respect for Jonathan Larson's um, work. I've listened to the soundtrack uh, for the original broadcast recording, and it's tremendous. It's It's beautiful if you're a fan of musical theater. And, um, you know, seeing the trailer, I definitely... Um, I think a lot of viewers can, well, any of our creative viewers can resonate with the fact of um, just trying to make it somewhere where you may be the only person like pushing, pushing your work. And I think that that's a story um, that will resonate with a lot of people. And so, you know, I, I'm excited to see Tick Tick Boom. I think that, you know, it has 
a lot of great pieces. And so just to see it all come together, I hope it, it does make a mark. And it is just something that says, hey, look at Lin-Manuel's first direct, directing project. And then it passes. And then we're on to something else. A thing that in a year and a half time, we mentioned on directorial debuts are you know part of the segment that we're going to do. Um, I figured it was only a amount of time before Lemon Miranda turned to directing. He clearly loves to have a big hand in his creative projects. He clearly loves to have a lot of the visionary experience about it, whether you like it or not, but that's what he likes to approach his projects as. So I'm very interested to see him tackle something small for lack of a better term. Like, I think Garfield can frankly do this in his sleep. He's talented enough where he can manage this at all. Um, the bigger question is like, you know, what will he be remembered by the end of the year for this or, you know, as a Tammy Faye? That will be an interesting discussion. Or Spider-Man No Way Home. Ooh. Or, uh, well, <laughs> that's not thinking. Who knows? He says he's not in it, but no, I don't know if everybody believes him. We'll see, though. We all saw the deep fake. Um, but yeah, Stephen Levinson writing it. You know, we all know my scathing thoughts on Evan Hansen. I did not like that, but I am willing to give this a shot regardless of his name on it. So if it, the trailer looks great. I'm willing to give it a shot. Are you guys like excited or somewhat curious or like, how are you feeling about this? Like so-called like short age of musicals where, you know, obviously you brought up like into the Heights, dear Evan Hansen. Uh, We got West side story coming up. Is this a good time for musicals? Obviously some of those have received kind of polarizing reactions. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I was also going to bring up, you know, everybody's talking about Jamie, which I love. And also Annette, which I did not love, but I know many people really, really admire. So we've been getting a lot of different kinds of movie musicals in addition to, and actually Diana the Musical, which we did not cover this week. That is also a thing on Netflix that I just remembered. It's a very interesting time for it. I love the fact that we're getting sort of a resurgence of the plentifulness of it. It feels like, you know, that that reverence for that style is coming back into being. And I love seeing directors being able to tackle that in these weird, extravagant ways. It's just a matter of like how much of them stick. We are going to then move on to our third main topic of today, uh, Berserker. You probably don't know what that is, but you know who Keanu Reeves is. He wrote it alongside artist Ron Garney, uh, which hit the shelves back in March. It was basically a huge pitch for an eventual Netflix property or an eventual streaming property. And now that streaming property has developed a bit more. According to a recent report, uh, Matson Tomlin, best known for his work on the uh, Netflix movie Project Power, with uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Jamie Foxx that came out last year, and also one of the co-writers on the upcoming Batman movie with Matt Reeves. He has just been attached to pen the script. Uh, Keanu Reeves will star in the project and produce it as well. Berserker tells the story of an immortal warrior who fights various foes throughout his extended life. Uh, No release date has currently been set for the Netflix project, but it is, of course, set for that. No word on the actual distribution or anything like that, or directors attached as well. We just know that Matson Tomlin is now attached, and Keanu Reeves is definitely going to star in this. Uh, Sky, I want to get your thoughts on this first, you know, as our resident, you know, uh, fellow comic book nerd, so to speak. Have you read Berserker yet? And if, whether you have or not, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, my thoughts are that Keanu's a man. I mean, honestly, like, ever since we got back to, because honestly, you guys remember that tr- first trailer where John, for John Wick, and obviously he said this line in the movie where he was like, you know, Everybody's asking me if I'm back. I'm thinking I'm back. He wasn't kidding. But the thing is, he was not talking to the villain in that movie. He was talking to us. He was talking to the audience. And he has, you know, made, he he has really like stamped his mark and really returned as one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. And doing it also like in different lanes. Like obviously, like I said, he's returned as like one of the biggest movie stars, but he's also diving into video games with cyberpunk. He's now dumping into comic books with Berserker. All he needs, all the only thing left to conquer is TV, which I don't know if he's done a TV show yet, but who knows? I mean, he's Keanu Reeves, so I could see it happening. Um, yeah, and Berserker, you know, I haven't read it yet, but I am interested in this just because obviously 
Keanu Reeves, like his niche is really, um, and where he's best is really that action genres playing like, you know, the stoic, you know, badass. And so I think um, I'm interested in this. Noah, over to you, because you actually brought the topic to me initially. What do you think of, uh, first of all, have you read it? And second of all, what do you think of the idea of the project? Came into view way before or way too fast for me to go and check it out before we recorded this. Uh, I would like to read it. So I do want to check it out. And just hearing about Keanu's or Keanu Reeves' work outside of, like Sky says, Hollywood. Uh, we did know he was making an appearance in a cyberpunk video game. And now that he's pushing a graphic novel, just, you know, Keanu is such a uh, likable creator that I can't wait to see what this, what this passion project, it would seem like, uh, what it ends up becoming. The art of this immortal warrior who just fights their foes throughout time, it looks like Keanu Reeves. You know, you have that uh, iconic look that we have from John Wick, which is like a bearded Keanu with his long uh, shoulder length hair. And to see him, uh, we know that this is a comic book that is going to be like very gory. We've even read like some of the short excerpts include punching somebody's rib cage out and then like battering another person to death with it. It's insane. And I cannot wait to see an iteration of Keanu like be, be doing that as this new character berserker just to excite anyone, uh, whether you're a movie fan, whether you're a comic book fan, excite you, period, for when that Netflix special is going to come. I mean, the thing is, I, and people have brought this up online, like obviously the John look, the John Wick look is amazing, but I do feel like Keanu needs to try to like space out his projects a little bit because now when I look at the Matrix trailer, I'm like, that's John Wick. That's not Neo. Like it's the same very much look. So it's just, it's a little bit confusing. Like obviously we all love the John Wick look, but then it's like every time he now appears in a movie with that look, we're just like, okay, no, that's John Wick in the movie. So Keanu Reeves, love you, but maybe just space out your projects a little bit. Just give, give us time to narrate so that you can change your appearance and then you can really embody a new character. I think I am with you on that in a certain degree. Like I remember hearing about this and going, this is clearly a vanity project. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like it looked cool. It looked totally badass, you know, like very Conan. Like I've heard kind of the same thing that it is very Conan. Like it's very kind of, you know, heavy machismo metal kind of, you know, complex stuff. Um, but the, the concept is kind of cool. It is essentially Vandal Savage if he were a good guy. And I kind of like that idea. I did not love Project Power. But I appreciated the creativity behind it. And if Matt Reeves is going to trust Matson Tomlinson with the Batman of all things, then okay, there must be something to it. So I'm cautiously optimistic about this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's Keanu Reeves. I mean, I guess that's the whole thing that you have to buy faith in. If you like Keanu Reeves, you'll probably like it. If you don't, then I don't know what's up with you, but you probably won't. But I think that's sort of the thing, I, um, lasting thing. I mean, Keanu Reeves is just going to do Keanu Reeves. Also, interestingly enough, I'm wondering... Do you feel like Keanu Reeves, I mean, I brought up that obviously his niche is this action genre, but should he go into other fields? Because obviously like one of his most memorable performances was like in Toy Story 4, which was completely different from everything he's done. So should he do more of that? Last question. Uh, If you mean more voice acting, absolutely, yes. I could see him, like, I don't think he wants to direct. I could be totally wrong. He doesn't seem like the guy who wants to, you know, get behind and, you know, run a whole team. But I could totally see him, you know, doing more of the production end. And it was so nice to hear his voice behind a character who I think we wouldn't expect Keanu to sign up for. So if we can get more quick cameos from him where he does play kind of off brand characters, I think it'll only benefit, uh, benefit all the attention that will be coming his way. Oh, you mean his eventual Annie award winning role as Sage in SpongeBob movie three. <laughs> you which named I, it right there. Which I, 
which I still have yet to see. I, I hope he's great in it. Um, we are going to move on to our fourth and final main topic of the day, probably our most important topic for today. Uh, as you guys may or may not have been hearing in the news, uh, the IATSE, the IATSE has been threatening to strike for a variety of reasons that we're going to go into in just a few minutes. We didn't we didn't talk about it in the weeks past because we didn't know if it was actually going to strike. Well, as a matter of fact, this past week, the IATSE, the International Association of Theatrical Stage Employees, voted with a 98% approval rating to approve an organization-wide strike. Now, that does not mean that a strike is going to happen. It just means that the organization now has the authority to authorize a strike of the organization if they so choose with the consensus of the organization behind it. We also got a follow-up from Matthew Loeb, the president of the IATSC, who told Deadline on Friday that if a deal is going to be reached with the uh, producers' associations that are uh, at the opposing end of this, it has to happen within the next week, basically saying it has to happen within days, not weeks. Uh, from an IATSC press statement, after four days of bargaining, talks concluded on Friday, this is this past Friday, by the way, with an, without an agreement being reached. Negotiations resume Saturday. While we remain committed to the bargaining process, there will come a point where the words must be replaced by action. Uh, again, this vote comes just after talks broke down back in uh, September between the union and the AMPTP, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, essentially the people who write the checks, who, um, who take all the unions and put them on different projects. Advocates for the union are pressuring the producers organization to end classification of streaming content as new media under different work clauses, as well as authorizing lunch breaks, uh, authorizing weekends off, and giving higher wages only exacerbated by the last year of pandemic job losses. If the strike goes through, the potential is that the 150,000 plus members of the IATSE could just walk off of their jobs. This includes cinematographers, lighting technicians, uh, editors, and everyone behind the scenes who works on almost all of the major film and TV studios projects for at least the next year or so. All of those could be affected. If this, and again, this is not saying that it is going through. The negotiations are still on the table. This will be continued to develop next week. And we will obviously bring this to you guys as more important develops come to light. But we wanted to tell you guys that basically this is where this is coming from. And we wanted to just briefly discuss it uh, as a result. Noah, I want to go over to you first. Uh, what do you think about all of this? If it's an argument about the people behind the cameras um, at the desks writing the stories that we all come come to talk about and to love, uh, to cherish, and really um, have a communal conversation about, it's it's unfortunate that from our level we really are helpless in the in the grand. I mean, between our positions, you know, we really are helpless in how we can impact um, in, impact this situation or impact this uh, this debacle that's going down uh but but all i can see uh from where i stand is just here are people who are just as admirable as those that are in front of the camera or those who are part of the um like creative project uh, in, in the for in the forefront it would be unfortunate if they if their meet if their needs could not be met because of you know xyz reason if, if there's things that they're asking for it's because they need them and i think that the respect should be should, especially if it's something like 150,000 members i think that's allowed enough voice and allowed enough uh plea to be matched or to be um you know to, to be to, re to be received it's unfortunate because from our side of things we just think that hollywood is moving and all things are going pretty dandy because we have all these beautiful projects popping up but really it's like there's internal conflicts that we will never understand the uh you know, intimate conversations about these things, but all we can, all we can ask for is that uh, the people who create all these projects, every person included on the production staff needs to be met with the same kind of respect, same kind of um, pay, same kind of, same type of conditions that are, um, that are valuable, you know, not just for our stars. And so I really hope this ends well for our, um, for our IA, IATSE members. 
Yeah, I, I think beyond that, you know, if you look at a lot of the hashtags going around, you look at the stories of the actual people on the ground who are spending these, you know, 16, 18, 20 hour days making these projects without breaks, without, you know, so much as bathroom breaks, so to speak. And you look at their stories over just the last year and a half, let alone the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years that this has been happening. You start to get a very big, very cynical picture of how a lot of producers will handle their projects and how that can get away from them. And that is not to say that the producers have not done anything, that the producers have not done anything. They have instigated, you know, certain clauses. Like there was just a development the other day that certain studios have been putting forward uh, a, a law for bathroom breaks, a law for 10-hour uh, work breaks in between. But there is also much more to be done. Like when you hear advocates talk about this, you know, I know, that I know probably some of you saw this. There was a video going around of one of the um, of one of the spokesperson of the IATSC basically saying you can give someone you know an increase that does not make it a living wage. You can give someone you know benefits, but that does not a good job make it. And I think looking at this from a much more complex perspective and a much more widespread perspective of the industry at large is the only way to look at this. And I I can just only hope that both of these sides can look at that in the same angle. And if they can't, then we are going to see some very big shutdowns. I think rightfully so. And I think it only matters that these people are given the respect and due time they deserve. So Sky, what are your thoughts on all this? Yeah. I mean, I mean, we've talked about it before, Brandon, on an episode of No Capes Acquired, the whole like Scarlett Johansson debacle. And the thing is, if it's happening with A-list actresses like Scarlett freaking Johansson, then imagine what's happening to everybody else. So it's just that obviously the higher ups need to do something about this because as long as this continues, it's just going to get messier from here. Like, yes, Okay, you'll lose some money in the long run, but not as much as if all these like all these people walk off of these projects. Well said, well said. And with that concluding our main topics for today, we are going to jump into our next segment, Quick Hits. It's the quickest thing you'll see all day. It's three minutes rapid fire topics. Uh, each one of us picked something for today that we want to talk about for just a minute. Uh, I am going to go first as soon as I get my timer that I should have had in front of me. Okay, in three, two, one. I am a massive fan of the Peanuts, as I'm sure that many of you all are as well. Uh, of course, you know, Great Pumping, Charlie Brown, you know, Chris, everything under the sun. Apple TV has has had the recent rights to the Peanuts franchise for at least the last number of years. They had the uh, they had the uh, Snoopy show. They had the Apple TV Plus, the TV Plus deals. Now we know that a proper main special is in development for the first time in at least a decade. Uh, the Peanuts Outline Sing, which is going to be the first um, the first proper follow-up to a New Year's Eve Peanuts special, is going to tell the story of the Peanuts characters after a disappointing Christmas where Grandma is unable to visit. And to end the year on a positive note, Lucy decides to throw the greatest New Year's Eve party ever as Charlie Brown attempts to fill one of his resolutions before it's far too late. This sounds absolutely adorable. If you know me, I am well-versed in, you know, human as being a fan of, you know, uh, Muppets and all these, you know, legacy generational animation and kind of, you know, uh, well-rounded family cartoons, things like that. I don't love all that Apple TV is doing with this, but I am very excited to see what they can do with this. All right, uh, Sky, on to you. I have the time in front of me whenever you're ready. Okay. In three, two. So have you guys ever heard of the show Ted Lasso? Yeah, no. it, it, it kind of it kind of ended its second season on Friday, and um, I quite enjoyed it. You know, whether you like it as much as the first season is totally up to you. But I will say with season two, there were a lot of like unexpected twists that I didn't see coming, especially with one certain character who like had a complete change of development. I won't reveal who that character is because no spoilers here. But um, yeah, I think there are definitely some cool surprises in season two. And I guess just looking at Ted Lasso as a whole, it's just, it's very cool to see a show like this be this popular because in this day and age where obviously like Marvel, Star Wars, and all these franchises are dominating the market, it's cool to see a show that's more like, you know, 
the light, you know, the lighthearted comedy feel good show that's just captured the attention of the world. And so I'm, you know, I'm all with the lasso vibes. Well said, well said. I, I'm still ashamed that I haven't gotten to it yet, but I will get to it soon. Um, Noah, on to your quick hits. Are you ready? All right. I, I kind of just informed myself about one of these, so I'm just going to run for it, okay? We're all rooting for you. In, okay. in three, two. All right. So we're going to talk about this movie called The Challenge. It is going to be the first feature-length film sp- First feature like film filmed in space. Uh, it is taken on by a Russian production, uh, staff, uh, primarily director Klim Shipenko and Russian actor Yulia Sharapild. Um, this is going to be filmed on the ISS station in space and they're actually there now and they'll be returning to Earth on October 17th. Keep your eyes out for that filmed in space movie. I also want to talk about Peter Dinklage's new project. It is going to be a musical. He is set to star in the musical titled Serrano and that is based on Edmund Rostin's classic play from 1897 uh, talking about a, a writing love letters to woo somebody else's um, bow. And it's kind of like a love triangle uh, co-stars, Haley Bennett, Calvin Harrison, Jr. Um, I love these like, Hey, write my love letter for me, but don't fall in love with me type of stories. Can't wait. And time. And also I, I should mention uh Serrano, also the basis of one of my favorite movies of last year, the half of it, go watch it. It's fantastic. That yes, has been, I was, I was going to say it's, it's so the half wait, of it vibes, right? Wait, wait, you've seen it. Of course. So good. We have to talk about it sometime. Um, that'll do it for our news topics today for you guys. Again, pretty, you know, shorter week. It was not too eventful. We wanted to get, you know, across the bigger stuff, especially the IATSC stuff. Now we're going to get into our new reviews for this week. No Time to Die and Lamb. Uh, we're going to start with the, you know, the sexier of the two. Lamb. I'm just kidding. Obviously, it's obviously is Bond. What do you take me for? Um, this is the fifth and supposedly final uh, Daniel Craig, James Bond movie. No Time to Die, directed by uh, Kerry Joji Fukunaga. So many release delays. Uh, we are finally getting it now. It opened uh, last week in the UK, is going worldwide this week in theaters. Basically, this is following up uh, sometime after the events of 2015 Spectre. We follow James Bond, again, uh, for the final time played by Daniel Craig. He is living a relatively quiet, globe-trotting life with his now fiancé, I guess, uh, Dr. Madeline Swan, uh, played by Leo C.D. once again. Uh He's still struggling with the events of the of the previous film, specifically in the events of Casino Royale with the death of Vesper Lind. It's 15 years old. I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil that. Uh, and basically, he gets dragged back into the wild and crazy world of MI6, thanks to uh, Felix Leiter, once again, played by uh, Jeffrey Wright. He and another CIA agent, played by Billy Magnuson, basically have this, uh, this lead on the organization of Spectre from the last movie. They drag Bond into it and... Insanity ensues. He meets Lashana Lynch, who has now taken up the 007 mantle in his absence. He reunites with M and Q and Moneypenny and the whole crew, as well as a new villain, Lucifer Safran, a uh, biotechnical uh, terrorist, so to speak, played by uh, Remy Malik as well. Uh, once again, uh, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade uh, writing this. They've written all the previous uh, Craig Bond films alongside Fukunaga and Fleabag's Phoebe Waller-Bridger as well as in this. Noah, you reviewed this for ASU Odyssey, so you have had the experience of this long before we have. I do want you to preface what your experience has been with the Craig Bond films in the past and then just go into uh, what did you think of No Time to Die as a whole? My experience with Daniel Craig's Bond career has really been Quantum of Solace and Skyfall. And I returned to it for this No Time to Die uh, finale. 
of sorts. And I really want to say that my first impression of this film, having watched it earlier, was this is really the culmination of all of what Daniel Craig has shown us that he can do with the Bond character. I think he looks amazing in this role. I think the action sequences are so engaging and hard hitting that it just leaves you, it leaves you winded after you've gone through an action sequence uh, with characters like the ones Anna de Armas uh, portrays or Lashana Lynch. These are great additions to the already existing cast of characters who uh, some are new, some are old, you know, some return. So, you know, people immediately have the question, okay, no time to die. This is a, movie that is part of a long-running series with Daniel Craig's character, do I have to watch all of the others to understand? To which I respond, you really don't have to because I entered it not knowing some of these characters from the movie Spectre, and I had still such an enjoyable experience watching this. I think it would help you to kind of understand the emotional beats between different characters, like why a certain relationship would matter above others, or what kind of history, what kind of uh, baggage does this person come with uh, for a character that we just met five minutes ago, but we're told to care about. So I found myself kind of in a pickle with, uh, with my feelings for those characters where I thought, Oh, if I had watched all of the movies, maybe I would just understand this relationship better. Uh, but for the, for what they're showing in no time to die, I think it's, it's, it's sufficient for you to just get through the whole story. And it is a epic story. This is a long movie. It's two hours and 43 minutes. Um, and it just doesn't stop. I think that, both new and old characters. One of which I want to talk about is James Bond's car. You get Bond exploding back, you know, being so shocked and then put into the situation where immediately he's being hunted, which to we know, uh, to our knowledge, Bond is going to be able to get himself out of any of these situations. But the way that he uses his car, it's so sexy. It's so just dominating in uh, this first setting that they have that I think it made me go, oh my gosh, like I'm not even a type of car person, but I'm like, oh my God, that car is so cool. Uh, and it really stole the, it really stole the show for like the first 20 minutes of the movie. I was, I was blown away by how, um, how amazing they use that. And then this movie really took me and held me from the moment it began up until it ended because of the variety of shots that were used because of how uh, beautiful the set locations were Um all of the lighting, this just felt like a production was scaled up to 11 on all fronts. And I, I really loved that. I really loved coming to a Bond film and feeling like it was a full experience. Um, and that's even watching it alone. I bet you if you watch it with your friends, with your family, it's going to be even more fun. Um, I've never considered myself like an audiophile, like music carries a lot of this movie through. I think that uh, when I wasn't as engaged, um, which was rare, it, it was the music that really brought me in and, and reminded me that I was part of a Bond film. Like I was, I was engaged in this, in this experience. The Billie Eilish song, as soon as it was released, No Time to Die, uh, which she wrote with her brother, um, it was amazing. And it's the intro song and it's right up there with Adele's Skyfall. And it's just so wonderful. Like hearing that, I was... It, this movie has one of the most like creative intro sequences of like graphic design that they make. Like there's one point where you see like a DNA sequence, but they're actually composed of bullets or, or of, of pistols firing at each other. And the strands of DNA in between are the bullets meeting. It's like, what, like, what was, who pitched this? Like, it, it's so, it's so shocking to to witness, but it's just so right for the film. Ana de Armas's character, I believe that she was going to be, um, her character was going to be like assistive throughout the story, but really she exists just for a chapter in the story, in the No Time to Die story. And it's such a wonderful one. Like, I think we get 
everybody, all of their, all of their periods of time on screen are well worth the watch. And I think that uh, that's what I was thankful for, where we're not getting just like useless characters carrying throughout like the entire movie, not that she was useless, but you know, the characters that we interact with when we do, it's so valuable and it's so right. Very hard for me to have complaints about this movie. Yeah. Um, you know, the only regret I have coming into this podcast today is not coming with a martini. I had to settle for this like little fancy glass instead, as Brandon alluded to. Uh, but glass. Yeah, exactly. I have to stand out some way. But no, I like no I like no time to die. I mean, like, you know, it has the everything you like about James Bond movies, especially like with the Craig era you get. You like Noah said Noah said pretty much all of it. You get the action, you get the amazing scenic shots, this great cinematography, the incredible car, the Aston Martin, who maybe is maybe the Aston Martin should be like, you know, complaining to like the Aston Martin should get paid. I don't know. Like, he, yeah, the Aston Martin was a star in its own right. Um, and just like everything that James Bond is about. And I think like you hit it on the money. This is an amazing final performance for Daniel Craig. I will say, I do think that if you have time to revisit Spectre, it might be helpful to revisit Spectre just because there is a lot of stuff with Spectre in this. And that's kind of what separates Daniel Craig's James Bond movies from others is because a lot of the old era James Bond movies, you can't really view them as solo outings. And if you, I mean, and still you can have fun with these movies, as Noah said, but I do think that they are really connected. So if you, I think it might be beneficial to do that if you have the time. But if you, if you don't have the time, I think it's still fun. There just might be some things in No Time to Die that might be confusing for some people. But outside of that, I do feel like, I understand this is the longest James Bond movie. I actually didn't feel like it dragged on as much as I, as some other people, just because maybe I was just in the moment and enjoying like Daniel Craig's, you know, final performance as James Bond. And with this universe, I think this, um, like I said, we won't go into spoilers, but it leaves off on a very interesting notes. And I do believe that it is a heartfelt conclusion for this Daniel Craig era who, I think I said on No Capes Required has put himself into at least like the top two James James Bonds of all time. I think really it's him and Sean Connery for most Bond fans now. And so I feel like um, this is an amazing final movie for him. I wouldn't say that it's on the level of, personally, it's not on the level for me of Casino Royale or um, Skyfall, but I do feel like it's a solid third right there. And I do think it's enjoyable. I actually put it right the same in my ranking. And actually, for context, I actually did over the past month, month and a half, I did revisit all of the Craig, uh, James Bond films. But Casino Royale rules. Quantum of Solace is a mess. Skyfall is stupendously good. And Spectre, for all of its flaws, I do think actually has a lot of merit to it, especially for what it's trying to do for Bond as a character. And I would totally agree with Sky. You at least have to know what happens in Spectre, because I think the, if I may, the tentacles of Spectre are enriched through this movie and and carrie fuganaga kind of knows this and i kind of love the way he plays again no spoilers too much but i think that only is the start of fuganaga's you know uh kind of ambition with this like i love him as a director i love what he did with um with this donation we're going to talk about seeing nombre later on and i love what he does with this but i think what he does is make bond visceral and tragic in a way that you know, we talked about sort of the idea of, you know, the cohesion of the of the Daniel Craig Bond films. And I again, no spoilers, but I couldn't help but feel at the very end of this, like I was reading a graphic novel. Like I could see like the painted letters on the wall and like the final quotes and everything. And it felt final to me. And I felt so rewarded 
again, from a very unique experience of having gone back and watched, you know, all the Craig Bond films. But as far as this goes, I think 20 minutes too long. You can easily cut 20 minutes off of this, and I don't think anything is lost. I think I love the Ana de Armas stuff, but it's kind of inconsequential when you really start to break down the narrative. You can easily cut some of the stuff with M and Lashana Lynch's character, which I think is a bit too long. for. I love the characters, but I just think it goes a bit too long for what it does. But all that being said, Daniel Craig, this is probably the best performance I've seen from him in this franchise. And that's saying a lot. He delivers in even the bad movies of this franchise, and he does so much with the tragedy and the weight of what Bond has experienced at this point. I love what Leia Seydoux does in this. I didn't love her inspector, but I could almost argue she is a code lead in this for how much her story sort of penetrates all the way through. I love the little shots of humor that you can clearly tell are Phoebe Waller-Bridgers in this, and I, I really just love every minute of it. The classiness of Skyfall is there mixed with all of the action spectacle of Casino Royale for a really fitting end to this. So color me really impressed. No, for sure. Yeah, I'm just interested to see. Um, I guess we can't go into spoilers, but um, yeah, no, it's just going to be interesting to see what happens with James Bond in the future. That's all I'll say. Uh, totally. And you know what? If, if, if nothing else, the choice of Kerry Fukunaga to direct this, you know, when you get directors like, you know, Martin Campbell and Sam Mendes and very kind of, you know, let's call them what they are, a very homogenous kind of, you know, British theatrical director. And they go into a kind of maverick like Kerry Fukunaga. It tells me that the franchise is willing to go in these very adventurous, radical directions. And if we can get more like this, because Kerry Fukunaga does t- throw in just like, you know, horror and like buddy cop comedies and things like that, that shouldn't necessarily work in this. And I think it's, I think it's a mission statement to say the Bond films are ready to change. And I like that idea. Do you like the fact, sort of like I brought up earlier, that, okay, most of the older films you can really see as, like, you know, solo outings, like, there were some big things that happened in one Bond movie, and then they're not really addressed in the next, whereas with the Daniel Craig era, everything is really a continuation, and there are some things that, especially with this final movie, there are going to be a lot of things brought up from Spectre, some things brought up from Casino Royale. Do you like that... um, do you like that these movies have kind of separated themselves and being connected where from, you know, the past James Bond movies where each of them is really a solo outing? I tend to enjoy the connected storylines of the Daniel Craig era of Bond. I think that that's because I always just want, I want more from the characters I've already learned. I'm not interested or I'm not as interested in getting the, getting the Bond character, but all of these different uh you know, supporting characters just kind of alternating with every with every new movie. Um, but to you know, to generations um, to generations of audiences who have witnessed the Bond era before Daniel Craig um, and who were in tune with that, like I wonder, you know, I, I wish we had one of their opinions because who knows? Maybe they maybe they despise you know the the connectedness of it all because they just want that Bond feature that's ninety minutes and then they could go home. Like maybe they just want that quick story. Um, but for us, we've definitely been more attuned to hey, this is a saga and this is like this is the order to watch them in. And if you do, it will benefit you. And like you both have shared, this is a this is a film that is a final film that really benefits off of your prior knowledge with the character, um, even if it's loose. Like like. I said, cause I had just seen Skyfall um, and quantum of solace. And so I expect, and I admire the continuation of, of, of this storyline. There is that idea of Bond being, you know, an icon. Icon should not have to adhere to any sort of like history or canon. And like, I respect that. But at the same time, I like the idea that this has said, no, like we can have stories and characters grow with audiences and with themselves. Like, I think that's a neat idea. But I feel like Daniel Craig is the perfect Bond for this type of generation, you know, from past James Bond films, because I think I was talking about it with um, some family members like this. Daniel Craig's 
Bond is really like, he's not just, you know, the smooth talking suave guy. I mean, obviously he is, but he also adds, you also add some edginess with that. You also add some, you know, um, complexity with that, some emotionality with that. And so I feel like his Bond is really all his own. And I think works perfectly with this modern setting. I do think we should quickly go into Rami Malek as a villain, because I think that has been getting a lot of attention. And I know Bond villains have become kind of an archetype in their own right. Yeah, I, I don't think he's on the level of, obviously, Javier Bardem, for me, I think sits at number one. I think Mads Mikkelsen is a great number two. So I don't feel like he's on their level. Um, if, if you want to say that he's better than the others, you could make that argument, even though I feel like, even though I had, you know, some issues with Spectre, I feel like um, Christoph Waltz is Christoph Waltz. So I'm not sure necessarily I would put him ahead of him. So I would say he's somewhere in the middle, but... Um, I don't think he's bad, but I don't know if I would say that he's like the best, one of the best Bond villains we've seen. I would actually completely contend with that. I think Ron Malik is doing wonders with this. He's chewing up every bit of scenery, and I love what his approach to all of this. I just truly wish we had gotten like two or three more lines of his backstory or two or three more lines to sort of infer like where has he been with, you know, the bioterrorism unit. There's a whole time jump in the movie, and I wish we had gotten more insight into that kind of thing. So there's disappointment in the writing, but in the character, I have nothing but good things to say. Uh, Javier Bardem was astounding in Skyfall. Right? So yeah. I, I don't think there's topping that. But when it came to Rami Malek's villain, I think I was – surprised by some of his actions because it seemed like the end all be all was it surprised me because the journey that we see in the, in this character uh the kind of moves they make make you assume that there is a larger planet play and there is if when you watch the film where it all wraps up i think just it, it left me surprised because it left me confused on whether this person's intentions were completely realized uh I guess just as a character, I wasn't as engaged. Of course, in that opening scene, they look terrifying and they are, they, they are evil, but, uh, I was waiting for more and the store, the latest Bond film seemed to be focused more on, you know, Bond as a character and all of these other, uh, side characters, but not so much. I, I didn't feel the conflict right up against, you know, personal vendetta with Bond and, uh, Malik's character. I didn't, I didn't feel that tension. Um, and I think if I had felt that it would have been stronger, uh, but for me, it just felt like he was, um, a means to an end and Bond had a mission and that's who was at the other end of it. And, you know, Brandon actually did say, okay, a couple of scenes that you could have taken out, maybe replace some of those scenes with, you know, more scenes with, um, Rami and Daniel Craig sort of going face to face. And that way, like when you do have them facing off at the end there, it does feel more worthy. Let's go over our ratings. I will start off with this very quickly. I'm giving this a very, very solid 8.5. I enjoyed this a hell of a lot. Love what it goes for. I love when it goes full Bond bombast. It bombast, if you will. Uh, it works so well. I think Craig's performance is absolutely stunning. The whole cast provides this great kind of, you know, ensemble endgame type thing of, you know, this has been Bond's rogues gallery. And I couldn't wait to see like where they took the directions of them. The action is high stakes. and I love what Fukunaga brings to it. Again, I have pacing issues. I have characterization issues, but I can forgive a lot of those for just how much fun I was having with it. So 8.5, no need to ramble on from me. Uh, Sky, over to you. Uh, rating out of 10. And if you want to rate uh, in the months of the uh, Craig Bond films, you can as well. Hmm. I don't know what a rating. I, I guess I'll go with yours. 8.5. That sounds about as good to me. Like I would say somewhere in like the eight to nine range, I would say like somewhere in between there. So 8.5 for all is perfect. Well said. So 8.5 is all around recommended. It. it is in theaters right now worldwide. Go see it. If you are, if you feel comfortable, obviously, but also if you are a diehard bond fan, I think you're going to enjoy this a lot. 
let's move on to our second and final new release of the week, Lamb. This is the new project from A24. Noah also saw this one. Uh, d- did you review it as well? Yes. You reviewed it as well. And we are going to hear part of that review right now. Noah, take it away with whatever the heck Lamb is. And that's exactly how I'm going to start this conversation. You know, what the heck is going on in that weird A24 film where you see uh, Numi Rapace and she's cradling like this child with out of nowhere, boom, lamb head. And you're thinking, is the whole thing a lamb? Is it just going to be like a lamb head and ears, but they have human big toes? You don't really know um, until you watch it. So I had the pleasure of watching this film already. Um, so who does it star? It stars um, Numi Rapace, and um, I apologize if I'm butchering the name, but it is Hilmer Snare Gudnason. That's what I'm going to say. And uh, they play a married couple living in um, in northern Iceland, and they tend a farm uh, full of sheep. And it's around the time that these sheep starting to have their babies, and so we have a one mother lamb who, or one mother sheep who gives birth to this thing that is not revealed to us yet. You have something that is uh, only displaying the head and we know that it has the head of a lamb. Um, But ultimately, you know, it's not a big surprise that this ends up being a hybrid of, um, you know, half human, half lamb uh, creature that is, it, it just, that's the main point of the story. That's what you move with. Okay. So this story is told across three different chapters and uh, depending how you both feel or how our, our listeners feel, I love a chaptered story. Um, I actually like getting chunks of stories and seeing like how well they fit the, the way that they were organized. Um, so the three chapters that you're getting here are really um, for one, the, the couple's reactions and sometimes the lack thereof when it comes to receiving something that, we don't know if we, if they're perceiving it as a miracle. We don't know if they're perceiving it as um, just some scientific phenomenon. We really don't know how they feel because of the lingering kind of atmosphere around what these couples relationship is like. So at the time that we meet them, we understand that, you know, from one conversation, we understand that they both talk about time travel and we hear from them about how, how much they uh, value their time now, but clearly one of them wants to go back to the past. So the focus of this movie then becomes what does this couple do with the real life problem of a understanding what this creature is and B fitting it into their lives. C understanding its its commitment to nature because this is something that came from um, an animal that they tend on their farm and so what right does that animal have then to this child that they are now raising um, it asks you a lot of questions or it wants you to think about a lot of questions and thinking happens a lot in this film because it, because it is not dialogue heavy this is a film that um, really grabs your attention with all of the imagery this is shot in Iceland and it's rarely dark um, this time or the time of year that they were shooting. And so everything is um, the focus of the farm, uh, their vehicles, their tools, their practices. That is really what takes focus of the action here. Um, it's It plays as a drama more so than a horror. You know, there weren't many times where I felt completely scared and shocked, uh, but I did really feel the eerie vibe of, you know, what's going on here and why, why isn't it a bigger deal than it and than what it is. And um that's the journey that you're going to go on with this movie. It's not very long. It's uh, an hour and 46 minutes, but I think it kind of breezes by. I think the best thing about this movie has to be just seeing what uh, the CGI team was able to put together. The graphics team was able to put together because it looks like a real child. Like I think part of the heartwarming moments of this film, because there are several is just seeing 
how this child who can't communicate in the traditional sense, like how this child is a part of the family or how relatives react from just the, the, their, the bare image of here's, here's this child that we're raising. Don't mind their head. It's a, it's like a, a head of a lamb. And so I think you go in there with the, with the sheer curiosity of how would that work? And then that's what you're rewarded with. You, you do get rewarded with that experience of, hey, you know, this is really how that conversation happens. Uh, this is really how a couple who doesn't really know all the answers, this is how they would react to it. Um, and then ultimately there is with a t- that tends to happen with A24's uh, like horror, like artsy types of films. There is a twist at the end, like there is a shock at the end that I think comes a little too late. So for me. Um, the story is told in three chapters, but what I think happens is by the time we get to the third chapter, you're really left with a feeling of, well, I don't know where the story's like, I don't know where we're headed. And I don't know like what the trajectory trajectory of the ending is going to be like, um, when the show wraps up or sorry, when the movie wraps up, I actually leaned over to, um, somebody nearby and I go, Oh, how do you, like, how do you think this is going to play out for like the next act or like the next thing that's supposed to happen? But then it ends. And then I was shocked because I go, Oh, I was, I was, I was left so teased, but in retrospect, I guess it's just kind of like understanding other storylines that go through like the cycle of violence where like these things never really end. And so, um, it's pretty jarring, but I think ultimately, uh, it's a story about how this couple manages to take in this rare phenomenon and then the real life reactions from those that are close to them, as well as with each other as to how they're going to handle this. And like, what's the reality of the situation here? Um, it, it didn't, it didn't win a lot of points for me. It was a beautiful film to watch, uh, but I don't see myself returning anytime soon unless I want to see that sheep baby again. Um, so I'm going to give this a five and a half out of 10. That may seem kind of critical, but I found that this movie, uh, it told, it told a good enough tale, but the way that it left me was more so okay, well, that was okay. And then I, and then I left. And so I, it kind of felt like I was looking for something more overwhelming. Um, but sometimes, you know, you can't get that with every feature. So uh, that's how I felt. It honestly did sound to me a bit, a bit fable like the idea of something that would be passed down through like campfire stories, but this very intimate kind of thing. So I entered it, I entered with that kind of expectation and it didn't really take that twist until that final, until that final chapter. And this movie, though, makes a great job at making sheep just look terrifying in the night. Uh, so that's something cool to look at, too. But yeah, going for the eyes. Yes. Uh, go in for that drama and those eerie vibes and you'll get rewarded. We talked about it before the show and I was like, I was betting that Brandon's not going to see this movie anytime soon. <laughs> what was your first guess? <laughs> With that being said, uh, we are going to hop out of our uh, main release for this quick window taking. Uh, we're going to be talking more about Carrie Fukunaga in just a little bit, but now we're going to be moving into your favorite unnamed segment, which we have been doing for a while. TV streaming nonsense hullabaloo extravaganza part three. Yeah, th- this is where we talk about the latest uh, TV and you know streaming things of the week. We have been talking uh, for the last nine weeks now about uh, Marvel's What If and the uh, the madness that has ensued from that, and now. We are at the end. Uh, what if season one, episode nine? Uh, what if the Watcher broke his oath? Uh, this essentially tells, essentially continues all of the loose story threads from the past nine, from the past eight episodes, I should say, but primarily from episode eight. Uh, so spoilers, if you have not watched that, we are going to spoilers with this. Hopefully you have watched it. If not, just skip ahead a few minutes when we talk about, you know, Ghost and Molly McGee and all of the nice things about it. Um, in this, it is not nice. Uh, Ultron is a god and he's destroying everything and it's very, very bad. 
And the Watcher basically has to go full-blown Nick Fury mode and contact the Multiversal Avengers, or as they later become known, the Guardians of the Multiverse. This includes Captain Carter, once again voiced by, uh, by Haley Atwell, uh, Eric Killmonger, Black Panther, once again voiced by Michael B. Jordan, Hardy Thor, voiced by um, Chris Hemsworth. You have uh, Star-Lord T'Challa, again voiced by the late Chadwick Boseman, as well as an incarnation of Gamora, which I'm sure we'll talk about in you know, a little bit about that, who has killed Thanos and essentially become you know, the mad titaness herself, uh, with Tony Stark really as her lieutenant. I can't wait to talk about that a little bit. Anyways, the multiversal guardians assemble. They go to confront Ultron with the assistance of, you know, Strange Supreme, what's been voiced by Benedict Cumberbatch. The, as we saw in the last episode, the Watcher has taken him out of his, you know, crystal prison and has released him upon the multiverse, so to speak. What essentially this episode is, is a great big old battle royale episode of just taking the toys out of the toy box and letting them fight. No, I want to get your thoughts on this because we've been on a bit of, you know, a joy ride, especially just in the last three episodes of What If. What did you think of this as a grand old finale? And um, what did you think in con? And what did you think of the idea of, as we've been speculating, bringing everything together? Right. We had the last episode with kind of feel like Infinity War because it was another, you know, Titan being uh, this time like God Ultron uh, getting all of these stones. And so then this is kind of like the end game time. It's like, hey, who are our players? Who are going to be our guardians of the multiverse? Uh, we do have a heavy focus on Captain Carter with this episode, which is nice because we did start the series with them. We get like the picking, the, the picking of all these characters, and then ultimately their battle ensues. There are, I think there are some great things about this. I think there are some callbacks to earlier episodes uh, we are going to be talking spoilers i hope that that's all right any listener out there uh, i hope this just encourages you to go watch it but in case it doesn't skip this part immediately but brandon it was so nice to see zombie wanda up against uh ultron that was a moment that i think i i didn't ask for but i'm so happy i got because it's just, you know we know that the um the power of the scarlet witch exudes or exceeds that of the sorcerer supreme and so we saw her take on uh the mad titan in endgame and so seeing that again just like reimagined um between zombie wanda and uh ultron with the stones infinity ultron that was that was pretty nice to watch i, I got a, i got a kick out of that the watcher breaking his oath is like one of the you know the watcher's biggest sins you know they they cannot interfere and so when they do it's kind of the question of what happens to all of these worlds after the team is done fighting uh, God Ultron, uh, Infinity Ultron. It's like, you know, okay, how do these people get placed back into their worlds and what is going to be the Watcher's role in that? And that's where you kind of get another conflict with the Watchers um, where you're like, will they break their oath again? Or like, was that just the, the one time that they would? Um, and then ultimately everybody returns to their worlds. And there's again, that moment with Captain Carter that is very similar to Captain America in the movies where they get to be reunited. That That's the end of their storyline. So interesting that they kept those beats uh brandon how did you feel watching this episode i also like that you brought up the idea of watcher and peggy together because the watcher clearly plays favorites throughout the multiverse and he clearly has an appreciation and respect for peggy that goes beyond and going to that point i like how i have my problems with how everything comes together but i like the idea that you know we get to see all of these all these stories expanded more because I think for all of us, whether we like the episodes or not, we were all craving that more. Like what happens to Party Thor? What happens to Killmonger, you know, Black Panther? And we get to see the progression of all those. And they feel so natural, especially Killmongers. I love what they do with him because throws that whole like hero or villain thing on his head even more. I love that, you know, morality qualm that this kind of presents of just like, 
you know, with the eventual fight with Ultron. And again, Ross Marquand as Ultron is a really darn good villain, like bringing a lot of the sinister in here. The biggest surprise to me, actually, weirdly enough, was was the climax with Natcap, actually, you know, her going to the helicarrier because it took me a moment to be like, oh, that's a nice thing. And then I realized in the end, just like, that's the one from episode three. I'm an idiot because that's the only one that hasn't been used so far. So that was kind of a nice, you know, thing for me to discover. This was, again, like a big old toy box of things that I had a ton of fun with. It was not as creative or as, you know, distinct or tight as a lot of the other episodes, but I had a lot of fun and a lot of enjoyment as someone being rewarded for, you know, nine weeks of watching. Uh, totally. There's that level of reward seeing the culmination of all these characters come together. I did feel like some of their devices for what was going to take out Ultron stones were kind of like Gamora. Gamora goes, I have this device like yep. that can scrape the stones out of his armor and then we can do it this way and this way. And I was kind of like, what? <laughs> what? Where did this thing come from? Like, I do have some gripes with it because I feel like the fighting or like the balance between all these characters hits with Ultron just made me go, okay, like, okay, hot potato. Now it's your, t- okay, now it's your turn. Okay. Yeah. Now it's your turn. Okay. Now it's your turn. And it didn't feel like the punches were even getting them anywhere. Um, and, you know, we, we see uh, planets blow up and it's like things that we've seen uh, in literally the episode right before it. So, uh, you know, why, I'm complaining about it, but really, yes, it's so much fun to watch. I wish we had spent more time with uh, this character of Gamora because they really are, they really are like the one character who we haven't had an episode with, right? Who we were supposed to get one and then COVID happened. We're getting it in season two. So that's interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thanks for that fact. I was going to bring up that I think, you know, we've mentioned the criticism of like the length and the pacing, which I think has been kind of the universal criticism of what if. And I don't agree as much, but I certainly would have liked to have seen more from this. I certainly would have liked to have seen tighter pacing from it all. This is the biggest example of that. You can't have an Avengers style team up story that's like 30 minutes. It just it doesn't work, especially with, you know, all these weeks of buildup with all these characters with a new character in Gamora who we've just met, who is so fascinating and we get none of it from her. Like, I think this is the one that suffers the most from it. It doesn't, you know, again, deplete in terms of enjoyment or anything, but it does unfortunately brings up more things and that spreads to the story. You know, I was surprised when I saw the 33 minute mark. I'm like, oh, this isn't even the longest one. That's surprising. We do get some really cool sequences. I liked seeing Zola just be comically evil again. Like, <laughs> like what did just, you expect? Exactly. It's like Zola. Okay. Like you're, you're threatening. Not so much, uh, but we're still going to use you as a weapon. And then the second uh, thing I wanted to mention was just uh, seeing Dr. Strange's corruption uh but seeing his full like exertion of power when ultron grows and he like just throws out those tentacles that was a moment for me that i that i went like damn that's so cool so still great things to see in this episode but i think like you said like it was just it it felt so rushed because of the balance that we had to maintain again i hope there's something cool in the wings i trust ac bradley of course with all the creativity behind this but I'm now worried. Uh, Why don't we talk about this new Disney Plus series that you are going to uh, inform us on? It is called The Ghost and Molly McGee. Who is The Ghost and who is Molly McGee? Yeah, so The Ghost and Molly McGee. This is the newest project from uh, Disney Animation. I have, of course, been, you know, the vocal mouthpiece on the show for Disney Animation for a while uh, between The Owl House and Amphibia, which I've gotten no on board with. Hopefully we're going to talk about the theme of season three. That will come in a while. Stay tuned for that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
Ah, why? Okay. Um, Ghost in Volume McGee has nothing to do with frogs, at least not that I remember. It actually has to do with a ghost named Scratch, uh, voiced by Dana Snyder, who you'd probably know from uh, Aqua Teen Hunger Force, a bunch of other things. He is this kind of cranky, curmudgeon spirit. What happens is this new family named the McGees move in, one of whom is the daughter, Molly, voiced by, I had the actress's name, uh, Ashley Birch. She's this kind of energetic girl. She is dying to make friends. Dying pun with ghosts. Ha ha. But they move into the house and Scratch wants nothing to do with them. He likes being alone. He likes, you know, causing misery in the town that they live in. There's this whole thing with like, a, there's a ghost council that sends ghosts out into the world to cause misery. And they have to file like bureaucratic reports for how much misery they cause. Scratch is really good at it, but he doesn't like dealing with people. So it's kind of a little back and forth with that. Anyways, Molly is annoying to him. He curses Molly, going to affect Molly forever, which Molly takes as, you are now my best friend forever. And it begins this unlikely friendship between the two. This show is adorable. Uh, the jokes are adorable. The animation doesn't feel like Disney. Uh, and I mean that in terms of like the recent efforts, you know, Gravity Falls and Owl House and all that. It feels much more kind of, you know, wavy, much more kind of Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends kind of cartoon. This would fit right in on Cartoon Network, by the way. Um, the humor is really nice. Um, it, it's morbid, actually. It's not amphibia morbid, but, you know, it's a show about death and ghosts. And, you know, there's a scene where Scratch tries to push the spirit of a, like, 90-year-old man back into his body. And it's honestly hilarious. Um, and the dynamic between Scratch and Molly is, again, it's adorable. Like, it, you clearly know that Scratch is going to care for Molly at some point. You clearly know that Molly is going to, you know, have problems with Scratch at some point. But it's the way they play off of those dynamics that are really fun. At the end of the day, it's not nearly as serialized. I, for context, I watched the first three episodes. I wanted to focus more on the pilot, but I wound up watching the first three anyways. The first six, by the way, are on Disney Plus right now. It is premiering uh, every week on Disney Channel, as well as dropping in bunches on Disney Plus. I probably should have mentioned that. But as far as the pilot goes, uh, it is also available on YouTube for free, by the way. I should, I should have mentioned that. So if you don't have Disney Plus, you can just watch it for free on YouTube. Uh, but it's it's delightful. It's charming. It's not it's not outrageously good. It's not completely fascinating. And if you're a fan of more of the serialized approach, the things like Owl House and Gravity Falls and Amphibia have done, you're probably not going to get behind this one nearly as much as I did. But you know what? It's it's fun. It's clearly enjoyable. And there's room for growth about this. I'm ready to give it a shot like I did Amphibia. You know what? Take it for what it is. I definitely watched the pilot. It's a fun watch. I'd enjoy it. Thank you, Brandon. For now, we can move on to a series that I'm sure so many listeners have tuned into. Uh, this is probably still number one on Netflix, um, but I have not checked today. Uh, but it is the show, uh, it is the Korean show, uh, Squid Game. So Brandon and I, uh, have had this on our minds. Um, I, of course, uh, fell into the trap of Squid Game and binging all the episodes with my partner, uh, earlier, maybe last two weeks. Uh, Brandon has recently joined and has now seen the entire series. So we're going to go ahead and talk to you about, uh, some of our reactions from the show. Um, and, uh, really what our experience has been like watching it. So, uh, Brandon, you know, first question out the gate is what, aside from this, if there was anything in your life, did anything turn you um, towards Squid Game before you knew you were going to watch it? Like, how did it, how did it, uh, enter your vision? Uh, the popularity of it, of, of it all. And I should also mention, I just checked right now, it is still number one in the U.S., even, you know, two weeks running. So congratulations to it, obviously. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I didn't know about this at all until just as sometimes happens with streaming content, you just start to hear things. And then eventually those five things turn into 5,000 things. And eventually you just can't avoid it. So that kind of happened with me for this. Like I just started hearing a bunch of it and then you brought it up again. And 
And at that point, I was like, all right, you know what? It's nine episodes. Let's give it a watch. And as far as just my reaction goes, this is weird. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> it is a weird show. But you know what? It's a really good weird show. It, and then weird in the sense that it is unique. It is a very precise vision, despite its very obvious influences. And we'll probably get to that in just a moment. But it knows what it is. It knows what its structure is. Its performances are really ingrained in, you know, the the gritty realism that is within the obviously, you know, mundane absurdity of it all. But I think beyond what it could be, I think it knows where to take its approach. It has a very, you know, it has a very widespread appeal. I was really impressed by it. I don't know if I'd quite say, you know, two thumbs up, but seriously was impressed. Yeah. And this high, this is a high concept story of, Hey, you know, what if this group of hundreds and hundreds of, um, people who have a gambling addiction or for some reason just have like these, uh, accru- large accruing debts? Uh, what if they were given the opportunity to participate in a, a series of games that saw them eliminate or survive elimination, uh, that would eventually reward them with the sum of money that would be, uh, I guess, collected with each person that falls. So the total ends up being something like $38 million um, when you convert it to like US dollars, but is a story that centers around maybe 10 or so main characters in a, in a collection of what is close to 500 contestants. And so when we say contestants, it's because uh, squid game is the name of a, uh, what I'm, what I have to infer is a Korean like child playground game. And what moves, how the episodes progress is with each series of games, they are games you could find on a playground like that children would play. So there's tug of war. Um, I don't want to spoil some of the other games, but just go into it with that kind of mindset where these aren't like, Hey, you know, solve a rope, a Rubik's cube as fast as you can. I don't know why that, that went into my head. You know, this isn't like saw where you're like, you have to, you know, put your hand into um, a pizza slicer until you have three pints of blood. Like, no, this isn't that type of, this isn't that series of games. Um, if anybody's watching the internet, they can see all of the simps as we would call them uh, over the, over the many beautiful faces that are on this show. Uh, but what I think is so engaging about this show is that you have uh, the main character who has such this kind spirit, such this want to help kind of attitude, but you're placing him in a situation where out, where outlasting the other contestants means outliving them. And uh, the method of elimination for much of these games is uh, like a bullet to the head or like a fall to your death. And so this is very, it's very dark situations that we're, that we're entering here with characters who are like the cheerful old man who um, just wants to, you know, uh, earn enough money before his terminal illness kills him or um, the young woman who is surviving in these games for the sole reason of providing uh, a mass of money to help her 10 year old brother. And so you're getting such relatable characters who, who have reasons for being there. I mean, there are villains there as well, which I'm happy that we get because not everybody's so uh, work together, you know, let's, let's get to the end of the game. No, there's going to be one winner and there's going to be 400 plus losers who are now dead um there's a whole element of you know guards who are mysterious they have their faces covered they're the triangle heads the circle heads the square heads um we have a cop that infiltrates and um portrays one of the guards for for a couple episodes you understand why his character is there um and the progression of episodes really starts with the uh 
first, you know, who's on your side. So we get our main character in the first round is uh, the doll. Um, it's like this huge doll and they play a game of red light, green light. So when the doll turns around, it's a uh, red light. You cannot stop. You should not move or else. And then green light is get as close as you can to the finish line where the doll stands. Well, if the doll catches you on that red light, there are rifles all around this room that are taking out hundreds of players in that first round where by episode, by the end of episode one, you're left with the feeling of like, oh, crap. Like, OK, this is the type of show I'm watching. Like there's going to be a lot of bloodshed. There's going to be emotional moments that um, that really get that really come at you full force. I think that, uh, you know, just a side comment, I, I was incredibly shocked by the first episode because how do I put this slightly? Like how much gun violence really like swept across America in, the, in like the last couple of years. I was like, Ooh, like, I don't know if I, like, I love this because it's so much like just rifling people down. Um, I was happier when we got to other, other methods of eliminating players, but ultimately I just had to have the forgiveness of like, okay, this is just like, this is the, this is kind of just the way that the show is handling eliminations. I can't, um, take it any other which way. Uh, but it was jarring to see that. I think that the closer you get to the end of the series, the darker it really becomes because all so many characters that you cherish like have now fallen and you're left with who the final contestants are. And it just leaves you feeling um, like, damn, that was a road trip. Like that was a trip. And, you know, there's hints at a sequel. So then you just go, am I ready to sign up for this again? Like, what are the stakes now? I, I want to hear what you want to mention. Uh, you know, what stuck out to you as being memorable and uh, why do you think, or wh- what do you have to expect for a season two in, in terms of like new content or what else they can do with the show? I mean, you've run down everything. I don't know what I can add to that. Um, I, I am very glad, though, that you brought up the Saw comparison because, yes, it's not, you know, the brutality of Saw. It's not necessarily the intimacy of Saw, but it is the morality questions of Saw, albeit with a very, with a very distinct, you know, very, you know, very uh, kind of precise anti-capitalist slang to it. And I know that everyone's preparing for Parasite and I didn't want to be that guy, just be like, oh, you know, all South Korean media, you know, apologize or anything. But it is very much in the same vein. It has the same kind of, you know, incredible disdain for that kind of approach to it. It has that kind of, you know, it has that kind of furious anger towards it that only bubbles up toward the surface to when you get to those last two episodes, you are just as angry as the final contestants that, you know, we won't spoil, but that boils through and you're just dying to get to the end, you know, so to speak. And the way that they play these games, I, first of all, the art design in this is spectacular. I, if it is in any consideration for Emmys next year, please put it in the Emmy nominations. The set designers, the costume designers, the colorists, everyone working on this creates such a distinct style to where I, I think three or four years from now, you are going to see these images pop up in more and more pop culture. It's just synonymous with what it is beyond the show. Like, that's how good I think it is. Uh, Lee Jung Jae, who plays uh, Guy Han, who's sort of our um, de facto lead of the series, he's so good in this. He's so freaking good in this. And what I love about it is that he plays exactly what he needs to play for a lead of this, which is that in a series of, you know, 500 plus characters, he stands out with a moral complexity and understanding about him a very kind of, you know, simple character arc to understand. But once you get to the, you know, unraveling point, it becomes so much more and so much more rewarding to follow this character. And again, I won't spoil, you know, where season two would eventually go, but it's it's good. It's really interesting. Um, I love John J. Hill's uh, music. He was also the composer for Parasite as well. Does great work on this. 
the way that it presents moral questions, I think could have been presented so gimmicky and so kind of, you know, tedious for what it is. I think a lot of viewers have been latching onto just that, which is just like, oh, it's murderous, red light, green light, good for it. But I think there's so much more depth to it that I appreciate. There's some imagery that I don't quite get behind. There are some character twists that I don't quite get behind. I really don't like how they handle... I think they could have done more with some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. I like where they start to go with it, and then they just kind of blow it in my mind. But for what it is, yeah, it's surprisingly good. And, you know, even though I like to be the guy to be like, ah, I don't like this, the most popular thing. Like, it's the most popular thing, and it's actually real good. So count that for what it is. It's just such such a, a a new and exciting series, taking risks, like taking story choices that we wouldn't have seen probably um, from American filmmakers anytime soon. Um, and it, it's it's surprising, but... Uh, commendable with the fact that this was first pitched or I guess first ideated by the creator, um, Wang Dong-yuk. Uh, they ideated it 10 years ago. Like in 2008, I was reading that this was first, um, he, the first iteration of the story uh, began, but then it kind of lived in limbo before um, Netflix, you know, picked it up. So, you know, what goes on there? You know, Netflix is already a global brand, but I think they've started to understand they don't have to they don't have to release distinctly Americanized or Anglicized, you know, content, whether it's, you know, Stranger Things or Bridgerton, like those things will blow up and succeed, but they can expand to other markets and bring on creators with different points of view and use those resources to more thing. And I do want to briefly touch on that whole, uh, the voting aspect within the show, because I think, and I won't spoil when it takes place, but I think it, it totally changes the function of the show because up till that point, it is exactly that. Like it is, you know, People trapped in murderous games and you have to identify with them as like, what would I do? What does, would that person do? Who's behind this? Yada, yada, blue. But when that happens, suddenly it becomes darker, more existential, more relatable. And it brings those overtones of the themes very quickly. It brings those overtones way more to the surface. And I was so much more impressed when that happened. I went, okay, we're doing this. Show me what you got now. And then it's, you know, let the reins go loose. So I'm so glad you brought that up because I wanted to bring that up. So uh, I don't mind t- going first. I think taking a look at the series as a whole, um, we have some of the most exciting, like new high concepts uh, realized here uh, across nine episodes. One of the episodes does feel, I guess, um, one of the episodes really takes you out of, of what we've been focusing on. And I think that that uh, does not benefit the story. I think it kind of like made me like, okay, like a breath of just patience because uh, I was waiting to get back into what, what actions would drive the story forward. Um, so that was unfortunate. It does run a little long. Uh, I'm happy the games uh, make you feel like some real emotions and there is real attachment that you feel for these characters. I'm going to give it a solid, I think it deserves a seven and a half from me. I would go even higher than that. This is, again, a very easy eight and a half. Honestly, if if it had been one, maybe two episodes shorter, if you had increased some of the stakes of the villains, if you had maybe, you know, if you had maybe diversified some of the cast a bit more, and we didn't even talk about uh, how the show handles Southeast Asian heritage and how it handles like minority cultures, which it does. And I was very surprised that it does. You know, if it delved more into those things and cut up a bit more of it and tightened a bit up, this could have been something really, really special. And as it is, it is still pretty darn special from a visual point of view, from an aesthetic point of view, from a, you know, emotionality point of view, beyond all the performances and direction, like it all comes together really well. It is just not perfect to me. So take that for what it's worth. I'm sure most of you have already at least tuned into the first couple of episodes. Definitely, 
definitely stick with it till the end. It, it it will throw you for a loop. It will make you question humanity, but I think it's worth it. Of course. Uh, and that leaves us with uh, the end of our TV segment. So thank you all for tuning in to Stream Wars. We talk about TV extravaganza. Everybody wants to talk about TV. That's what it's called. Uh, let's go ahead and transition now to our final segment for today's show. It is going to be directorial debut. Uh, we are returning now with director Carrie Joji Fukunaga. Uh, they are the director for um, No Time to Die, which we uh, reviewed earlier in today's segment. Uh, Brandon and I watched their directorial debut titled Sin Nombre. It is a film from 2009. I will give you the IMDb summary. Uh, it is a Honduran young girl and a Mexican gangster are united in a journey across the American border. Um, it's one hour and 36 minutes, so it's a quick watch. Um, what's really focused on here is, um, I think, gang interactions or like, you know, the the transition of what your of what a boy's life is before and and during the um i get the addition into a gang um and this is a gang that you know proceeds to jump him in um the boy is something like 13 years old and kind of has a role model in our main character uh named casper um and then we really just see how their affiliations with the gang impact the story of you know, our main character, Casper, joining a Honduran family as they take a train to immigrate into the United States. This, like I said, was a quick watch. It is a beautiful film to, to watch. And I think when it came to the characters, uh, myself being uh, Mexican-American, I do have family members who have stories of immigrating into the United States. And uh, this is that emotional journey of, you know, the two sides of the world where when you cross that border, there's so much, I, I can't say lack of violence, but I would just say it's, it's a violent journey to do something like crossing the border and to see that here and seeing nobody, it's really uh, the main journey that takes place uh, and then throwing in the gang violence and um, affiliations that it has with its characters. It's an emotional ride. Um, some of the plot points that take place between some of the young members of the gang and some of the like more veteran members, uh, you can see them coming like from a mile away, but it's just still so just shocking, I guess. And it's, it is a violent film. Uh, there isn't that much bloodshed, but when it is, it's like, it, it's like the Joker walking in and slamming somebody's head on a pencil. Like it just happens. I'll stop there for now. Brandon, uh, you know, what are some of your initial comments on uh, watching Sin Nombre and understanding that this was a work from Fukunaga? I've always liked Fukunaga's work. I like his Jane Eyre movie quite a bit. I think Beast of No Nation is not perfect, but he directs Idris Elba wonderfully in that. And I think he has a real, real grasp on, on world buildings like that. That's why True Detective, I think, works. That's why Maniac doesn't work, but it's at least ambitious. And I kind of like it for that. Um, and with No Time to Die, you can tell where the more visceral physical aspects of Kerry Fukunaga's directing are. He's very visceral in his terms of action and is very methodical in how he paces his shots and things like that. And this is that, but I found it a little bit more tame. I like how this approaches the, not necessity, but the kind of, you know, the prevalency of gang warfare in certain societies. I like the idea of Smiley and Casper, you know, Smiley being this young, impressionable kid and Casper being, you know, still a kid, but much less impressionable. And so he can kind of see through the lies that, you know, some of the gang leaders are putting forth the sort of, you know, the mythology of toxic masculinity that they're kind of putting forward that you see very early on in the film and then keeps going throughout. And I will say I like how Fukunaga tackles how prevalent that can be. You know, you'll just have like small dialogue interactions between, you know, the gang members or even, you know, the way that Jasper later on talks to uh, Saida, who's the uh, Honduran immigrant that he meets. Like the way that the dialogue is framed, I really like how he approaches that. 
At the same time, though, it is also a movie where not much happens. It tries to break up some of the monotony that could come with the train thing by like, oh, they stop at like, you know, one of uh, Jasper, uh, one of Casper's old allies, or they, you know, go back to the gang leaders or things like that. And it kind of works for a while. And then after a while, I just thought this should be centralized just around these two kids. Like, I would have just liked to have seen their story going forward, you know, having seen uh, Smiley being conflicted between like which side to choose from and then have that lead to eventual confrontation with the border. Like that, I think, would have been tightened. And the way that this works is mostly prevalent. I think it mostly works. But there's certain instances where I just felt, okay, this is getting away from itself. You can clearly tell Carrie is trying to reel in and tighten this up to make it say something. And it is it is very ambitious. It is, you know, certainly brutal at times. It is certainly worth a watch in terms of certain things. And I love going back to this after watching No Time to Die and seeing what he can do with a budget of that scale versus something like this, which is on, you know, a raggedy old train with, you know, two dozen extras and things like that. I love going back to that. At the same time, I have my issues with it, but it's certainly an admirable start, much like when we talked about uh, She's Gotta Have It at the very first episode. Like, I like this more than that. Like, I like the characters more than that, but it gave me the same vibe. When we have Smiley returning to the group and agreeing to hunt down Willie, his former friend, former probably, like, mentor figure, because he's like an older brother or something, he's given a gun and told, you know, okay, fine, you want to prove your worth? Go and go and kill him and we'll know that you know, now that you can be a part of us. And I think that seeing that, I was kind of like, oh crap, you know, this is so terrible. I felt worse as soon as I saw him around a group of 10 and 11 year olds, just being like on the playground, they're like, yeah, I got to go kill him. Like, I'm going to have to go hunt him down. And the friends are like, what do you, like, how, how are you even going to do it? And Smiley casually pulls out the, this revolver from his pocket and is like, yep, just going to go. I got to go take care of this business. Just like it's like a casual, like a casual day and a casual meetup of friends. That was so, for me, when I saw that, I was like, holy crap. Like, I knew that the kid was involved in the gang. You understand that. But when you see him have conversations with people at his level, which is like his age and his little, his little friends, um, it's so devastating. Uh, when they reach that border, uh, Sarah loses her family members and, you know, they have to make a, they have to make a push for that, um, for crossing the lake um, with a, uh, a coyote who's there. And so as they cross the lake, the gang, you know, your past finally catches up with you. The gang finally reaches Willie and he has a, a standoff with Smiley who holds a pistol to him. And you kind of have that moment of, is this really going to happen? And then, you know, we can talk about this confrontation, but, uh, you know, let's also include in the conversation when Syra crosses that border, having endured like struggle to survive on a train, losing family members, ultimately ending up alone with the phone number that she's been reciting the whole film, trying to memorize because this woman named Yesenia is going to help her when she crosses the border, uh, walking to a payphone and just, just so much emotion there because here she is now in the U.S. where, Where's the gang warfare? Like there's there's nothing there that is immediately um, dangerous to her. But, you know, the the switch of the situation, the switch of the environment is really what's jarring about this. I did want to point out uh, Palila Katan, who plays um, Syrah, who is excellent in this, by the way. But I particularly love that you brought up the phone booth scene, because if you watch her face in that scene, you know, it, the walk up to it, her body language is stiff and it's very it is it is a completely is a complete visual representation of what has happened in the previous scene, you know, with that shootout at the border. And you can tell that this is a this is a broken person. This is someone who is going on their last shred of hope. And when you see, you know, the phone call pick up and Yesenia picks up, you see just the slightest of hope in there. And that is a that is a choice performance from uh from Pulitzer that I just I admire so much. It made so much of that scene worth it for me. She's tremendous in this. 
you know, I think that we, we've touched upon how we feel about seeing nobody. I think we can probably uh, deliver our ratings now and uh, taking in this story just completely, you know, no distractions, just sitting down. It wasn't even available. Uh, I, I rented it on like the Apple store. It wasn't even available in English. And I was like, that's fine. Like, I'll just, I'll take it in as it was made. Um, and uh, I would say that this probably stands at a, I would give it a seven. Uh, I think I would give it a seven. This is a seven out of 10 for me. It's a beautiful watch. I think that every, everything's so clear, like everything's shot or most things are shot in broad daylight and everything just looks so clear. I love, I love what they show here. The characters are very real characters that you will probably hear stories of if you listen to immigrant stories. And it really ages, I think, some of those young characters. Like it just, it puts them into a mental state that is so just devastating to see their development in. And for some of them, it's it's the rest of their life. So, you know, I'm looking at it from that kind of perspective. Uh, So I'm gonna give it, yeah, I think it's a 710 for me. I should also point out uh, Adriano Goldman is the cinematographer for this. He also worked with uh, Kerry Fukunaga on Jane Eyre both of which look amazing, by the way. Um, as far as ratings out of 10 go, I'm going to be generous. I'm giving this, a, I'm giving this an eight. I, I think this is really well done. It is clearly a vision that Fukunaga has for this kind of a story, for this approach to you know immigrant stories and this kind of aesthetic of immigrant stories. And it is brutal, and it does not shy away from the brutalism at all, and it does not shy away from the tragedy of it all. My issue is just that I don't think it's necessarily framed to be as frantic or as dark as I think it could be. And seeing where Fukunaga goes down the line with True Detective, with Peace and No Nation, I think he has that in him, and I think he's playing it safe with this a little bit. Not safe enough to where it detracts from the movie. The characters are still well-rounded. They're still really interesting. The aesthetic behind it is great. And there is tension there, and there is really good subtext there. I just wish I had a little bit more, but still, worthwhile recommendation if you're especially looking for you know directorial debuts of this length. It's very interesting. And with that being said, that has been episode eight of Plot Devices. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening to us once again this week. Listen, while we got you here, you're listening probably on Spotify or Apple uh, or Apple Podcasts or RSS feed. If you're not following any of those, go follow those at Plot Devices Podcasts. They're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our RSS feed. Go follow us there. Uh, it means a lot to us uh, if you can you know, stream the show, tell your friends about it, and tell your friends about our social media accounts as well, at Plot Devices Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's Plot Devices Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All episodes will be up uh, every Sunday evening, uh, just whenever I get to them. It's usually earlier in the evening. I will try my best. I am only human. First of all, join Joining us as usual, our co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, where can people find you online and what do you got going on in your life? Uh, what do I got going on in my life? I am uh, changing my Twitter handle. So now my Twitter handle is Noah's Plotting. So please go and follow Ooh, me on Twitter. It happened! <laughs> it happened, finally. I That's what it's going to be. <laughs> Noah's Plotting. Um, I Like I said, I'm wrapping up some of my reviews for the week. Um, but expect to see the Odyssey uh, link shortly, as well as the or Odyssey, the Odyssey link for No Time to Die shortly, as well as uh, Lamb. And then here in the next week, I am shaking in my seat. Cannot wait for Halloween Kills. Cannot wait to talk about it on the pod. It's going to be a wonderful week for horror and uh, cannot wait. It's going to be a good Halloween show. Also joining us, substituting, of course, for Samantha Corvaya. We can never, of course, replace her. But subbing in for her today is Sky Merida from No Caps Required. Sky, thank you so much for agreeing to take part in our madness today. Where can people find you online and what do you got going on in your life? Yeah, for sure. So you can find me at um, Sky Merida on Instagram, at Flat of the Sky 11 on Twitter. And I'm also hosting a podcast that Brandon might have mentioned called No Caps Required. We do some stuff there. Also a podcast called Sneaker Week, where... To keep up with all that, we were just talking about sneakers and all that. So, uh, yeah, but you can follow us at Zero Capes Acquired for No Capes Acquired on Twitter and at No Capes Acquired on Instagram. 
So either, any of those accounts, feel free to follow and uh, tune in because I think Brandon actually appears on an episode that we recently have in store for you. Thank you, Sky. You're great. Thank you. <laughs> I, again, thank you so much. And again, guys, go follow Zero Chris Wire. It's fantastic shows. Sky does major work with that. Um, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King Forty Five. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King Forty Five. Go follow my band Cablebox underscore Music on Twitter and Instagram, and check out my review of The Last Duel coming on ASU Odyssey next week. We're going to talk about it on the podcast as well. With that being said, it is episode eight of Plot Devices from myself, from Noah Guzman, and from Sky Merida, and also from Samantha Corvaya, who is of course here in Halloween spirit as well. This has been Plot Devices, and we will see you guys next time. <laughs>